Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Psalm 119, verses 25 through 32, these are the words of God. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I have told of my ways, and you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your wonders. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove the false way from me, and graciously grant me your law. I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. This morning, I want to talk to you about revival. And I want to talk to you about what revival truly is. Hold on a second. The Daniels are sitting on this side of the church? (laughs) Did you guys do this on purpose to throw me completely off? Anyway, okay, sorry, I'll back, get back to it. So, uh, it's just, it's, you get used to certain things, okay? And that's just not right. That just means, hey, cleaning team, the Cheerios will be over there this week. Okay, so, just, so, just so you know. So, <laughs> I love you, Nathan. Anyway, so I, I want to talk to you guys about revival. I want to talk to you about what revival really is. Uh, and... Uh, just as importantly as that, I want to talk to you about God's process for revival. There is a process for revival. And the particular revival that I am referring to in this message is a revival of life, a revival of hope, a revival of obedience, a revival of understanding, joy, truth, faithfulness, focus, endurance. All of those pieces are there. And I set that in contrast to what the church often refers to as revival. The church often refers to revival as some sort of emotional uh, excitement or some sort of enthusiastic expression of your faith. And, And although those are fine, the struggle that I have faced in my life or the thing that I've observed in my life is that many people have Uh, ecstatic experiences and all kinds of enthusiastic experiences, but that it never lasts long. It has a short shelf life. (laughs) And so that's not the revival we're talking about. We're talking about a truly godly revival. That's what I want to focus on today. This is also a revival that is going to be lived out by faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, the Apostle Paul instructs his readers to run in such a way as to win. I know that you all know this passage. Run in such a way as to win. Uh, But in order to win this race, we are going to have to be revived according to a godly life. We see that David used the same exact language in verse 32 of Psalm 119. He said, I shall run. And this is a vivid illustration that shows both the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. When we run the race in such a way as to win the prize, God has promised that he will be faithful to uh, enlarge our hearts and to give us perseverance. That's pretty powerful. So if we say, Lord, we trust your word, we accept that grace you've extended to us, he promises to give us perseverance and strength in this journey. David uses the phrase, revive me, ten times in Psalm 119. 
uh, just in that chapter alone. And then the other authors, other authors in the Psalms, including David, uh, use this phrase over 30 times through the remainder of the Psalms. Along with the meaning of this phrase, there are also particular means by which Uh, revival comes. So if God wants to revive us, he has a mean or a method uh, to revive us. David also communicates several reasons or purposes or whys for God's particular revival. And that in and of itself is going to branch into two separate parts. We're going to talk about uh, the whys within us. There are whys for you uh, there, there is a better life ahead if we will submit to God's ways. Uh, but there's also a why in that is God's character is such that he revives people. So we'll split that into two categories as well. So the first thing that we're going to explore is the means. And then the second thing that we're going to explore are the reasons. And finally, we'll wrap it all up as we go through it verse by verse. So here we go. The means of revival. The most common, and arguably, and if you ever want to sit down and talk about this, I would love to have this discussion, but arguably the only instrument that God ever uses for revival is, in fact, His Word. This truth is communicated repeatedly, although often synonymously through Psalm 119. So let me give you a couple of examples. In Psalm 119.37, and these will be up on the screen for you. Psalm 119.37, it says, Revive me in your ways. We have revival, and we have the Word of God. This is the synonym for the Word of God in Psalm 119. I've, I've pointed this out many times in this series. Uh, the next one, Psalm 119, 140. Revive me through your righteousness or through your righteous ways is how that uh, is rendered. So revive me through your righteousness. There's revival. There's the Word of God. Psalm 119:93. I will never forget your precepts for by them you have revived me. By your precepts, you've revived me. The word of God and revival again. Psalm 119, 107 and uh, 154. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. That's the just black and white version of it. Revive me and according to your word. And then finally, Psalm 119, verse 149 and 156. Revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. So word... Ordinances, ways, righteousness, all of this is synonymous. And so God wants to revive. Is that clear? He wants to revive, and he does so through a particular means. It is through his word. The fact that revival comes via God's word is not something that should really take us by surprise. It really shouldn't. Uh, uh, Hebrews 11.3 tells us, By faith we understand that the universe was created by what? By the word of God. So he creates the universe by his word. Uh, In other words, no pun intended there, uh, if God creates life through the word of his mouth, why should we ever be surprised that he wants to revive it when it goes astray? Why would we ever uh, wonder why he wants to revive it through that very same word? This week in the blog, I'm going to spend some time dissecting uh, the eight words that we find used most common in the New Testament Greek for word. Most of the church gets caught up on two terms for word, especially the Greek terms for word. They get caught up on the logos word of God, and they get caught up on the rhema word of God. But there are eight terms that are used for the word of God, and so we're going to explore that, and my aim is really just to demystify 
the kind of ideas that we have towards the Word of God. Really powerful. So I encourage you to check that out. Okay, so the means or the way by which God revives His church or His people are clear. It is the Word of God. But what about the reasons for revival? We could spend, really could spend hours speculating on all of this, giving subjective reasons for it. And we may turn out to find that those subjective reasons end up having objective facts behind them. But the best way to do this in any situation, Bible study tip for you, just read the words on the page. (laughs) Just read the words on the page. I promise you it will take you far. So Psalm 80 verse 18 and Psalm 85 verse 6 reveal that revival results in a couple of things. So these are the whys, or a couple of the whys, as per the text of Scripture, for revival. Number one, sustained repentance. We need revival so that we can continue to walk in repentance. Uh, Please, show of hands, how many of you know that you will be repenting until the day Jesus returns? The rest of you are liars and need to repent now. So, okay, so we're going to be repenting until Jesus returns. So we've got sustained repentance. We also have a call uh, uh, or the ability to call upon God's name. I'll explain that in a little bit. And then finally, we also have rejoicing. When revival comes, we're able to rejoice. Now, just tidbit of information. The Psalms that I'm referencing here were actually written by Asaph and Korah. And the reason I point that out so that you understand that um, David wasn't the only one who came up with this idea. This is a, an inspired idea by God that says the way he wants to revive us is his word and that there are many reasons for that particular revival. So uh, check this verse out. Psalm chapter 80, verse 18, it says this, then we, then we shall not turn back from you. That's something you should highlight in your Bible. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Now, two things that we see here. First, we call upon the name of God as a result of revival. This means that we run to King Jesus in times of trouble or in, in times of need. There is a difference between praise and worship and calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord is who you're crying out help to. If I call on the name of my father or name of my mother in my time of help, I'm calling on their name. I'm not praising them in any way, but I am saying, I need you to help me. The same thing happens in this, and this is, this is communicated everywhere in the scripture. So to call upon the name of the Lord is to run to him. The second thing that we see in this is a slightly backwards way of saying sustained repentance. Maybe a little bit of biblical Yoda speak here, right? Repentance is the turning away from our way to God's way. How many of you know that? Returning away from your way unto God's way. What the psalmist goes on to say is that revival produces in him the desire and the ability not to turn back from God's way. That's sustained repentance. Not to turn back from God's way. I think we all need this. And so if you're struggling in repentance, if you've, if you've confessed your sins to God and you have said, I want to walk after you, but you find it hard, here is the answer. You need to cry out for revival. You need to cry out for true biblical revival because it does transform us. Okay, that was, uh, that was Asaph's take on it. Let's go to Korah's take on it. Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not yourself revive us again? As you can see here, revival is also a repetitive thing. 
That's an interesting thing. When I was growing up, the churches that I grew up in had revivals every Thursday night. I don't know. Something happened between Thursday and the next Thursday. Everybody died again, and they needed revived again. But the truth is, is that revival is a perpetual thing. It is something that continues to come. So, so Asaph says this, or Korah says this, Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Revival produces rejoicing. Maybe the reason why we struggle in worship at times, I'm not saying largely as a church, but maybe individually, why we struggle at worship is because we're not revived. We need to run back to our king that week, right? So I think we've all seen uh, this kind of uh, rejoicing or this kind of praise in new believers. There seems to be a heightened enthusiasm or excitement uh, when people are revived or they come to Jesus for the very first time. Uh, this, is, this is their revival, and this uh, genuinely leads to celebration. This is why I also believe that the story of the prodigal son ends in a party. The prodigal son's story ends in a party. Why? Because the natural outflow of a son or a daughter being alive when they were dead is praise. The natural outflow uh, for you and I when we are revived is praise. It's rejoicing. So it seems that Korah got that right. Now let's go back to Asaph for just a second. In Psalm 80, verse 19, with similar language, Asaph sang the, these words. He said, O Lord God of hosts, restore us, revive us, restore us, similar language, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. We will be saved. So now we even have salvation. Now I just I want to give a tad disclaimer here. When you're reading the scripture and you see the term salvation, please don't be fooled into believing that every time the scripture talks about salvation, it means the doctrine of salvation or soteriology, fancy big word for you, right? It, it's not always that. Most times in the Old Covenant, the term salvation had to do with the justice of God, uh, saving people from their enemies, being oppressed. And so this is exactly right here. This is exactly what Asaph understood. He said, your face will shine upon us and we will be saved from what? Our oppressors, our enemy, not to a great by and by somewhere in the sky. Psalm 119 verse 88, David wrote this. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Now, right here, we make that shift, not a shift, not just what revival creates inside of us, Life, salvation, all of those things. But now we're looking at the reasons uh, for the whys behind revival, and they have everything to do with the character of our king, the character of our God. Look at, look at what it says here. It says that God revives us according to his character, according to his loving kindness. Notice this. It says, revive, revive me according to, not unto loving kindness. According to, that is something in him. The reason for God choosing revival is because of God's character. It's because he is loving and kind. Can I get an amen on that one? He is loving and he is kind. He lavishes revival on us because he chose to do it, church. He chose to do it. It's not based on us, but it is rather based on his own character. And so I would encourage you, if you want to study further this week, check out Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. We see this clearly in Psalm 143, verse 11. This will be on the screen as well. Uh, this verse communicates both the reason God revives and the means by which God does it. For the sake of your name, 
That's a reason. For the sake of God's name, his name's sake, that's the reason. O Lord, revive me in your righteousness. That's the means, your righteous ways. Bring my soul out of trouble. We have a character of God that is a reviver. And we have a way that he does it, which is the word of God. Now, even if you wanted to view righteousness in this particular context as the nature of God, it still proves my point. If, it, if you want to argue that it's his nature, it still proves my point. The whole of, God tells us, the whole of God's word tells us that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, let's put all of this together, that the means of Revival is the word of God, and the why behind it is God's character. Put it all together. How do we become revived? How do we become the righteousness of God? Through the word made flesh, through King Jesus. So again, the means is the word, and the reason is for life, or the reason is because of his character. All of these uh, ideas point to the same exact truth. At all times, they point to the same exact truth. So, so far, here's what, here's what we've learned. Uh, we've learned that revival creates sustained repentance. Revival uh, creates the ability to call upon the name of the Lord. We don't want to call on the name of the Lord unless he revives us. We, we want to when we see his goodness and his kindness and his love. And I'm telling you, this is how the unbelieving world sees it. They see it through the pronouncement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This word is what revives people. It is the way unto salvation, the scripture tells us. So we've seen a calling upon God's name. We've seen rejoicing. We've seen salvation. We've seen the loving kindness of our God. And now we see the very glory of God. All of these are the reasons for God to revive us. Now, with respect to the glory of God, just a quick, I don't know. I deal with a lot of these issues when I'm listening to people in the church or when I'm listening to people in the broader church, and I feel that it is my responsibility as a teacher to address some of these issues. So um, I want to highlight a significant piece about the glory of God. Some in the church today seem to imply that all that matters in all of life is just the glory of God, and that people are minimized. That is, that they, they're, who cares? But listen, you can't get God to be glorified unless he has some to glorify him, okay, right? I mean, he is being glorified in the heavens, but he created us for the very purpose to reflect that glory and to honor him, amen? On the other side of this, there are those who believe that people are the only thing that matters and that God and his glory are just facts. They just, they just happen. But this is not what the scripture says. If we look to the truth of the scripture, we see that this is a both-and situation. God reviving us, that's the you and me part, the people part, for his glory is quite like a father who, for his own reputation and for the reputation of his child, stops at nothing to see that child restored. That's the God we serve. He cares that deeply for us, and yet we should care that deeply for his glory. In Romans 2.24, Paul pointed out that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the hypocrisy of God's people. So clearly, God's glory is a concern according to the scriptures. The idea there is taken from Isaiah and Ezekiel and is intended to call God's people back to faithful living. Uh, but... It's to call people back to faithful living, which means that you and I are clearly uh, a goal inside of all this or a concern in all of this. 
God's revival has always been twofold. It is for our good, but it is also for the sake of his glory. The scripture is clear. God wants our good deeds to shine out. He actually made it so that people would see them and glorify God. That's what the text of Scripture says. He also wants, or at least tells us that people should see the fruit in our life. What we do should bear fruit. It should produce that in front of people and they will glorify God. But he also wants us to know that all of this is possible because he has remained faithful even when we're not. God remains faithful even when we're not. Last thought concerning God's motivation of reviving people. And then we're going to quickly, as quick as I can, walk through this verse by verse. Isaiah records a rather uh, breathtaking word from God's mouth, okay? This is found in Isaiah chapter 57. And I shared this with a friend this week who needed encouragement. And uh, I hope that it encourages you. But this is... This is just wow to me, okay? The text reads this. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. And then here's God's words. Not Isaiah's words. Not Nathan's words. Here's God's words. I dwell, which is just a word for I live, right? I live on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Where does God live? On a high and holy place and with the lowly and contrite in spirit. Powerful imagery right there. But look at why. I live with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God himself declared that he lives to revive people. Is that not amazing? God lives to revive God does not, nowhere in Scripture will you find the text say God lives to enact his wrath on wicked people. God is just. God will do so. But he lives to revive. This is why the Scripture says that he wants that none should perish. That he's not slow as some consider slowness. No, he's patient. He wants that none should perish, but that all come to everlasting life. He lives to revive people. That's the God we're talking about, church. That's the God that we're preaching to the world. This is why Jonah rightly says that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. He is the one who relents concerning calamity. He does not want to bring that on people. He wants them to have life. So why am I bringing all of this up instead of just jumping through the verses? Because I want you to see that the reason David was a man after God's heart, track with me please, the reason why David was a man after God's heart was because David was actually after God's heart, not his own. He wanted what God wanted. Because why? Because he knew it brought revival. He knew it brought joy. He knew it brought peace inside of his life. There's nothing wrong, church, with desiring good things in this life. But the good things that we should be looking for are found in King Jesus. Amen? They are found in our Lord and our Savior. They are never, they are never found or fulfilled in our ways. It's just not where it's going to be at. So this should broaden and deepen our understanding of what humility really is about. Because true humility does not look inside yourself for answers. <laughs> I need to say that about 10 times. Humility does not look inside yourself 
for answers. This section. Humility does not look inside yourself for answers. This section. Humility does not look inside yourself for answers. Finally, last but not least, humility does not look inside yourself for answers. It looks where? Jesus. It looks to our king. This is so important. Okay, we got 11 minutes. Think I can make it? Nope. <laughs> I don't even like people anymore. Okay, let's do it. Let's go through it. Verse 25, 6. My soul cleaves to the dust. I am going to win, by the way. <laughs> anyway, my soul cleaves to the dust. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I have told of my ways, and you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. In most Arabic-English lexicons, the idea of cleaving to the dust actually is understood as poverty or neediness. That's kind of the, the, the general term. But in some, case, and in some cases, that's accurate, right? You can study that, Psalm 44, 25, and 26. But um, as we recently learned a week, week or two ago, words, and now we're going to learn that phrases have an intended meaning as per their author. So if you really want to find out the meaning of a word, go to the context. If you want to find out the meaning of a phrase, go to the context. You need to understand that in, in many ways. In Psalm 119, the idea of cleaving or clinging to the dust is intimately connected with repentance. That's what we're looking at here. This is also seen in the ancient Eastern practice of putting on sackcloth and ashes. We find that in the book of Ezra or Esther. We also find that in the book of Jonah. And why I say Eastern is because those people weren't Jewish, at least not in Jonah's case. This was, this was uh, a foreign army, right? Nineveh. So they repented in sackcloth and ashes. Isn't that a pretty cool thing? So this is, a, this is an Eastern concept. David here is in a state of repentance. So he says, I cleave to the dust. I'm in repentance. Repentance, as, a very, as we all know, is, again, that turning to God from our ways. This begins, and this is the distinction you all need to hear, repentance does begin with remorse. It just doesn't end with remorse, Right? You, you should be remorseful of wicked ways or wrong ways, but being sorry or feeling sorry for something is not biblical repentance. Doing the other thing is biblical repentance. Do what God says. That's what we're all called to do. This is true revival. So in verse 25, David said that he was cleaving to the dust or clinging to the dust. In verse 31, which comes after the grace of God of verse 29, David now clings to God's testimonies. There's the replacement. Your ways, God's ways. David had turned. His remorse had sparked an action inside of his life, right? Verse 26 confirms the repentance idea. The wording indicates this. It says, David, cleaving to the dust, confesses. It doesn't say confess there, Nathan. Yeah. It says it tells God of his ways. He tells of his ways. This is a confession moment. God's an God then answers David. That's all we see. It's an, uh, it's, a, it's an emphatic statement, but what God answers is a question. Whatever that was. And that answer that God gives caused David to seek understanding. Whatever God's answer, it caused David to seek understanding. Now, the language of verse 26 made me jump up and down this week because it sounds very similar to the language we find in a dialogue between God and Job in Job chapter 38. Here's verses 1 through 3 of Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? I don't want God to say that to me. 
Who's this idiot who doesn't know what he's talking about? There's the, there's the English version, right? Okay, now gird up your loins like a man. <laughs> Mama? Okay, <laughs> gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. I love the sarcasm of God. It's powerful, right? In Psalm 119.26, listen to this. David revealed that he had also told God of his ways. Very much words without knowledge, just like Job did. Otherwise, I think he would have kept them in the psalm, so they were junk, right? The difference between these two accounts is that we don't know how God answered David. We just don't know how it happened. But we do know that it results in the same thing. David cries out to God, and he says, teach me your statutes. David, like Job, surrenders. This is the same exact response we get from Job. How do I know this? Look at Job 40, verses 3 through 5. The words, again, are on the screen. Then Job answered the Lord. This is after God just blasted him for a couple of chapters. Uh, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. In other words, I'm shutting up now, Lord. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. I'm going to go with a suggestion for most of us when talking to God. Shut it. Okay. Job 42, verses 1 through 4. This is really good. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job responds, therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. This is the last thing Job says. I'm going to ask you, you do the talking. I'm going to ask you, and you instruct me. David, like Job, required revival, which led him to repentance. And that repentance led him to wanting to learn God's ways, not his own. He wanted to hear from his king. So up to this point, revival includes life, hope, the source of understanding. And now we're going to look at what understanding results in. So the very next verse, verse 27 of Psalm 119, make me understand the way of your precepts so I will meditate on your wonders. You should pray that this week. Make me to understand your ways, Lord. Make me to understand. I need help. If you get it in your head that you're smart enough and you can figure all this out by yourself, you're, it's not right. It's not true, okay? Make me to understand. As a dad, one thing, uh, it's one thing for me to live out my faith before my girls uh, and, and let them observe that faith. It's another thing altogether for me to live in such a way that they understand its essence, that they understand why I do what I do. David says to God, make me understand, right? Make me understand. As a man after God's heart, even at this point, David saw the precepts of God. He could read the words on the scroll. He just didn't get the precepts all the time. Is that true of anybody but me in this room? Yes. I can read them. Sometimes I just don't get them. David needed God's help. And this is true for you and I. This is humility. This is repentance. We've got to be ready to admit it, though. Notice also that in the context, meditation is not the act by which we arrive at understanding. You will not sit in your room with your legs crossed, humming weird noises, and expect God's word to be transported into your head. It, that is not how this works. The Bible never gives you this idea. This is New Age nonsense. Meditation here seems to be more along the lines of adoration and praise. 
And according to the King James Version, it even has the implication of evangelism or talking about God's wondrous works. Let's read it again so you can catch it. Look what it says. Make me understand the way of your precepts. Help me to get it, right? Who are you running to right there? God. What happens as a result? So I will meditate on your wonders. After you get it, meditation begins. In other words, when we truly understand God's precepts, we rejoice in them because they make sense. It makes kingdom sense to all of us. We see that God's ways are truly higher than our ways. When this happens, church, we will rejoice in God's law. The reason why we don't rejoice in God's law right now is because we just lack understanding. But this is why we need to humble ourselves and say, I need greater understanding. We need to grow. We need to be those people. This is how it worked with David. It's how it's going to work with us. So David would sing these things because he understood God's word. Sing to him, Psalm 105 too. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. David spoke of God's wonders because he understood them. It's possible, again, that the reason we don't sing is because we don't understand. Psalm 145.5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful uh, and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. David meditated on that which was glorious, that which was majestic or wonderful. Once we understand God's word, we'll actually see them as majestic and wonderful, and we will meditate on them. Nathan, I can't seem to read my Bible on a regular basis. You still haven't seen the, the majesty of God's ways. Nathan, I'm really struggling to keep up to, uh, to uh, have a disciplined life in my study because there's understanding that needs to be had. What you ought to do is raise your hand and say, I want to be taught. Help me. That's what we should do. But that requires humility, church. So now we have life, hope, understanding, and consequently, we have joy. Next, we're going to look at truth and faithfulness. Verse 28 and 29, coming down to the wire, guys. You know, you know. I'm trying to win here. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. In verse 25, the way of revival for a repentant soul, one who's cleaving to the dust, was God's word. In verse 28, God's word provides strength for the repentant soul regarding associated grief. How many of you know that there's always grief with sin? There's grief with sin, okay? David's grief had to do with walking uh, his own way or choosing his own path. And that led to many consequences. Revival came when God taught him the truth. And peace came when God strengthened David in the midst of his grief. No matter the source of your grief, the truth found in verse 28 reveals the antidote to grief. How many in this past year have grieved, have struggled with grief? Listen to me. Listen to me. The antidote to grief. The antidote to grief is in verse 28. Read it again. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. I don't care, not in the wrong way, what your grief is. It, is, it doesn't matter. God's word will strengthen you in a time of grief, no matter the source of it. Okay, guess what? I failed. It's 11 minutes. I'm still going. Okay, so Isaiah 26, verse 3. You all were right. I repent. I'm sorry. Okay. Does that make you feel better? I hope it does. Yes, it does. 
Barney admitting I'm wrong is something I do on a daily basis, so you better amen that one too. Anyway, so the antidote to grief, the word of God. Isaiah 26.3 says this, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. How many of you could use more peace right now? And be honest with me, raise your hands. More peace right now, get in God's word. Stay your mind on him. That's what needs to happen. No matter the reason for our grief, our strength, our peace, our rest come from God, uh, come from looking to his word, come from resting in him. Seek first the kingdom, right? Verse 29 then can be a bit challenging. Remove the false way and replace it with your law. This is a sort of transplant operation. Uh, Removal often comes with pain. You know that? Removal often comes with pain, but the replacement can also feel uncomfortable for a time uh, as well. My mom, as beautiful as she is in every other area of her life, she is a pretty awesome nurse who plans to retire. So if you need health care, get it now. Anyway, so she plans to retire, right? I don't think you're going to want the health care she gives because she's a transplant coordinator, so you should probably avoid that at all costs, right? But the, the many challenges that people face in transplant uh, are, I mean, she can tell you about them if you'd like to hear about that, but um, there is a pressing problem that comes with a transplant, and that is the body's desire to reject the new organ, okay? And mind you, that rejection never goes away. It's a lifetime issue. Although the new organ is going to give somebody life, their body just doesn't recognize it as their own, and so they want it out. The rejection can be combated by medicine, but again, that medicine is a faithful taking of medicine for the rest of your life. That becomes a new normal. Now, Bob Briggs has had a transplant. You still take the medicine, correct? Yes. And that is not always comfortable, is it? You just have to do it. It becomes a new normal. You don't always like those kinds of things, right? In our new life in Christ... Here's the parallel. In our new life in Christ, an old, the old organ of sin and destruction has been removed, and God has given us a new life. If we meditate daily on his word, that's a sort of medicine. I hate to, to bring it down to such a small level, but it's a kind of medicine. And if, that is the, if we'll meditate on it, we will live for the better. It will strengthen us and, and build us and, and cause us to walk rightly or to live rightly. But this doesn't change the fact that at times it still seems strange. Amen? It's going to seem strange at times. Sin has these phantom pains, right? And they may stay with us all the days of our life. Sometimes it's not phantom pain. Sometimes it's consequences. But still, uh, it, it sticks with us. And the beauty is that there is coming a day when that old man will be completely transformed. When it will be complete and you will look like the one whose image you bear. And I I long for that day, right? I want to become transformed. Okay, verses 30 through 32. This is how we wrap it up. I've chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. This is showing us that... um, that David was now choosing a faithful way, but that faithful way had been presented to him. God had taught him that faithful way. And so he had to choose it. Obviously, he chose the wrong way in the past. Can I get an amen? 
Okay, now I know who I need to counsel. Okay, so chosen the wrong way in the past. <laughs> That's why nobody raises their hand when I do things. Anyway, but now he's looking at the right way. Okay, he's looking at the right way. So let's track it from the beginning. David was in the dust. He needed to be revived. He asked for help, which God did according to his grace or his loving kindness. And then David chose the faithful way. That is the order of how this works. Okay? That is the order of how this works. Uh, there's a conscious effort on David's part to direct his attention to God's word. And David placed God's ordinances before him, and he did that daily. Now, that doesn't mean he wrote it on his mirror, but hey, if you need to do that, do that. Uh, what he was saying, though, is that they were always at the ready. They were always easily accessible. And why were those things easily accessible? Because they save, because they rescue, because they give you life. You feel stressed, you feel worried, you feel uh, filled with anxiety and grief. Keep God's word ever before you. There's nobody on this planet that has an excuse. We have a digital Bible. And every one of you is on Facebook. I know, except for Nathan Daniels, and his wife does it for him, so <laughs> she doesn't either, anyway, but the point is, is that we're all, we always have this ready, right, we can get there, we can find God's word, we can keep it before us at all times, there is a challenge, uh, challenge in this line, notice it says, do not put me to shame, it seems to communicate that even in repentance, there could still be ramifications for our past ways. You may carry those all the days of your life. That is not God not loving you. That is not some sort of uh, plight on your life. That is just a simple residue of this life. And it will not go away until we see our king face to face. Don't put me to shame simply means that those things might stick around. Just because we choose God's ways doesn't mean there won't be consequences of the past, and we have to humbly surrender and accept those consequences. As we arrive at the final verse, we see a declaration of running the race in such a way as to win the prize. Back to the Apostle Paul as we started. If we will run the race by faith, if we will push forward, if we will go to win the prize, God will remove our shame and he will enlarge our heart. And there's a lot to that idea. That enlarging of the heart, I believe, is, uh, is communicated by David in Psalm 30, verse 11. It's on the screen. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. What's your heart enlarged to? To glory in your king. To worship in your king. That is amazing to me. So when we run by faith, when we know that God's ways are the best ways, when we put his testimonies always before us and allow him to enlarge our hearts, then and only then will uh, we be faithful to turn all, uh, will he be faithful to turn our mourning into dancing and lavish gladness upon us. Set us to be singing to glory in him forever. I can't think of a more beautiful picture of that uh, twofold revival. Twofold revival of the means and the wise of all of this. We get to have enlarged hearts, joyful living, because we trust in God, even in the midst of everything else in life.
Isn't that awesome? Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.